0: Uh, other than the obvious, just do it. I would find somebody who, who will be able to kind of look over your shoulder. A lot of times, it might just be easier to just pay someone like a few grand. Like, hey, man, like, I just need you to run this transaction to me and look over my shoulder, make sure I don't do anything stupid, be essentially like insurance for me. How much
1: do you want? I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world.
2: Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. If you like our show, the easiest way for you to give back is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com to slash review for links and instructions on how to do that. We would be so grateful. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom.
1: Greetings, friends and families. I'm Neil, and I'm Brittany. You're listening to the Road to Family Freedom podcast. Our guest this week owns over 2,600 rental units and is the leader of the Hui Deal Pipeline Club, which has acquired over $155 million of real estate by syndicating over $15 million of private equity since 2016. He's also the host of the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast. Lane Kawaoka, welcome to The Road to Family Freedom. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's good (laughs) to have you. So you you began your investing career in Seattle, correct? When you had a full time job as an engineer, right? Right. right. And you were uh, sort of an accidental landlord. Uh, you bought your first property as uh, just as your primary residence, correct?
0: Right. So I did not uh, have to take that leap of faith that a lot of people <laughs> do getting started. Yeah, and fell into it.
1: <laughs> and then you uh, and then you got into buying turnkey properties, correct?
0: That's correct. Okay, started started with a couple primary res or more primary marketplaces, and then ten thirty one for a bunch of turnkeys.
2: Gotcha. Can Take you tell away. us a little bit about that first property that you bought?
0: Yeah, so it was uh, my primary residence. It was an A class rental in a great area, just north of Seattle. Three hundred fifty thousand dollars purchase price, which was a lot back then in two thousand nine. It rented for twenty two hundred a month more piti was 1600
1: yeah so that was definitely not the uh definitely not the one percent rule
0: (laughs) right but i mean i thought it cash flowed you know yeah little did i know back then
1: (laughs) yeah and you did you live in that you lived in it first
0: right i lived in it for about a year and then i caught up an old landlord and said hey i want to rent this out because i just you know I don't know how I was old. I was like an early twenty something year old, and, and kind of living the single life. And I was like, "Let's rent this out. This makes the money."
1: Yeah. Did you uh, come in with a twenty percent down payment, or were you able to do like a since you were owner occupied? Did you do like a three percent down?
0: Yeah, I came in with a twenty percent down payment. Um, okay. So you know, at the time I was making like eighty grand out of college. Yeah. Probably saving a big chunk of that 30 grand starting out every year. But then when I started to rent it out, that was really my secret sauce, right? Just being able to save a lot of money, just putting it all to investments, 20% down payments along the gotcha. way. Gotcha.
1: And where did you live? Once you started renting it out, where did you live? What was your primary residence then? I um, lived
0: on the company Dime. <laughs> they, um, It was a 100% travel job. So oh, wow. I would just move, move around from hotel to hotel on the job and um on the weekends when i, when I wasn't working i would uh kind of work i mean there was always <laughs> work to be done so I would just kind of stay in hotels or you know a few i would say like probably five or six times i probably had to get a hotel for myself because <laughs> there's no work to be done you know
1: yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, but yeah I mean, you know with all the money saved it was uh it, it was kind of worth it
2: yeah, yeah. What kinds of lessons did you learn from that first property?
0: Um, first off, you know, I started to listen to a bunch of podcasts, read the books, you, know, you don't buy properties in the primary markets like Seattle, California, New York, Boston, you know, cause the rent to value ratios don't work there. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. $350,000, 2200 a month. That's well below the 1% rule first lesson there second lesson was you, know, you don't buy properties in a class areas in that that property was probably one of the most prime locations other than like a bellevue or a Medina mm-hmm. where bill gates lives but you know you you, you kind of move towards more b and c class areas so i learned that early and that that was eventually why i sold my first couple properties in seattle moved it out to more turnkey or cash flow market secondary markets
1: not sure. before we get into that, talk to us a little for our listeners that maybe don't understand why you wouldn't necessarily want to buy a class property as a rental as as opposed to b and c
0: yeah, so typically they just, you're not going to hit the cash flow um numbers the rental value numbers number one so numbers numbers always go first, but that's you know it's just a different philosophy Mo- i think most investors i call them amateurs they invest for like appreciation right mm-hmm Buy low, say high, Make, makes total sense, you know, when you kind of look at it from that point of view. But sophisticated investors who aren't looking to just take some swings at home runs all the time, and they have a, a decent amount of capital saved up, it's sort of a capital preservation game too. So what they are doing is they're kind of going after both, which first starts with cash flow, and then they're they're going to also play a little bit with appreciation. But to them, appreciation is icing on top of the cake.
1: Yeah, so that that first Seattle property probably—I mean, it didn't cash flow great, but it probably—I mean, given what the Seattle market's done, it appreciated like crazy, didn't
0: it? Yeah, that three hundred fifty thousand dollar property I sold in two thousand and fifteen for like four fifty five hundred. Wow! So you know, as much as I say appreciation is gambling, and you know, you shouldn't count it. <laughs> you know that. At that pocket, a pocket like one hundred fifty thousand on that, and that was able to buy five more additional single families across the the market. So that was a key step, and then my other property also pre- appreciated hundred thousand. So I was that was how I did this 1031 one exchange where I exchanged two yeah. properties for nine.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know the thing that we often talk about with cash flow is invest for cash flow first, and people think, well, that's so that I can have the cash flow to retire on cash flow later but it actually also it's the safety net it's what you know it's what's going to keep the lights on you know as the market fluctuates you know and the real estate market over time is almost always going to go up you know if you give it enough time and so having that cash flow to allow you to hold on to a property is is what's going to is what's going to keep you going
0: right right i mean another philosophy i always had was like hey i want my you know, we all think about saving, saving, saving and pension in the future, but I'd rather have my pension today, you know, and multiple streams mm-hmm. of income. And first, you know, I, I didn't like my job, right? I hated my job. You know, find any other construction supervisor who has a good experience out in the field for the first five years, and you're probably looking at the boss's kid or something like that. It just doesn't happen. So my primary goal was like, I need to get out of this rat race. This sucks. So, I wanted to replace my income. So, for me, that was, I saw that as cash flow first. Hmm.
2: Makes sense. So, once you decided to get out of those primary markets, you started investing in turnkey properties?
0: Yeah. So, 2012 came around, um, the rent to value ratios got even worse because that was when the prices really started to come back up to what it is today. So, I thought my investment career was over, but you know, many times when you hit resistance, you kind of go around it and you pivot. So, this was a pivot for me. Um, I, I looked at one of these Birmingham turnkey rentals at $70,000 and they rented for like eight fifty. dollars And I was like, you know what? Like, this Seattle market investing in my backyard is closing up. It ain't going to work anymore. Um, I can try and force it like how everybody else forces it mm-hmm. and not cash flow and actually lead money every month with negative cash flow, or I could try this out. I mean, it was just like a, you know, 20 grand down payment to just try it out. So that's what I did. And it worked. And, um, yeah, so the, the two properties and all in on the turnkey stuff.
1: So you took, uh, so you took all that capital equity from those Seattle properties and 1031 exchanged them into how many turnkeys?
0: Um, nine. So I had, um, 10 at that
1: point. And I later on, I purchased another one to get up to 11. Gotcha. And you, uh, financed all of them or did you buy any of them for cash?
0: Yeah. Finance, all of them got up to that magic 10 Fannie Mae loans that you're, you're allotted, but you know, I just kind of want to point out too, like from, I think a lot of problems I see talking to investors is they have just too much equity in their homes. Right. Like those first couple of Seattle properties, I had 100 150000 respectively in those two houses, but I was still making the same amount of income. Yeah, there was mortgage pay down, tax benefits, but that kind of stays the same through the life of the whole. You got to figure out what your return on equity as an investor is. I mean, in the beginning, it's all great, right? You're very leveraged. Your LTV is high, but then as your LTV goes down, so does your return on equity. And one of the biggest mistakes I see unsophisticated investors make is, are like, well, I'm cash flowing, you know? So like, if you think of a per- person who has, owns a house outright, like my uh, stupid landlord, I don't know what they're thinking, but they own this million dollar house here in Hawaii outright. I rent it for $3,000. They think to themselves that they're, ca- they're cash flowing all that money, which they are. Yeah. Um, but we all know a bunch of that goes to more um, expenses. They're making like two or three percent on their money three thousand dollars a month right yeah and like it's just if they open their eyes and like figured out what the return on equity was they realize that you have investors need to re-leverage their funds via 1031 exchange which i don't really like um or selling the asset or doing a new 30-year note and getting that equity out
1: yeah we, you know, we, it's something that we struggle with. We have substantial amount of equity here in our home here in Las Vegas, and we need to live in it for now. So we can't just up and, mm-hmm. uh, we can't just up and sell it, you know? So we, you know, we're exploring strategies on how to, how to put that equity to work, uh, at some point, which we will, uh, which we're, we're pretty close to doing. We'll talk about later on a different show. I'm curious why, uh, what you don't like about 1031 exchanges. So for most
0: investors who are high net worth, well-paid, I believe they will graduate towards private placements and syndications, which are not real estate. They're investing in real estate, but you cannot like kind of exchange into a syndication or private placement. They're LLCs. And yeah, there's all these YouTube videos about do so you can do a tick and, and whatnot, but those are impractical from a syndicator standpoint, um, just not. not practical so you can go down this road of getting a single family home great appreciation and rolling it into a quadplex, and then a 16 plex and then a 32 plex and that's what we call a mom-and-paw investor Um, a lot of things flawed in that in that um that method you know you got all your capital in one asset right sophisticated investors they have no more than five percent or even ten percent of their net worth to any one deal that's why they like to go 50 grand 50 grand into a couple dozen deals and and that's kind of their their vision that's my kind of my vision of wealth building today
1: yeah, uh, yeah. um so i want to get into to how you're investing now um but i want to talk a little bit more about why you shifted away from turnkey's
0: yeah so i i had about 11 of these turnkey's and you know at the time um, that was when I kind of started my podcast because all my buddies were asking me, We go play basketball, like, hey, like, how are you getting on these properties like 2,000 miles away? You mean you, you don't go visit them? You know, they thought it was crazy. So, I was, and, and they try and help your friends, but like, you know, it's real estate, right? Because nobody does anything. Right? <laughs> so, what does any uh, millennial do but then make a podcast so he can just mm-hmm. give them a Q- QR code? Well, I don't do that, that's kind of geeky, but I give them a URL to Go download the podcast. So initially, my podcast was all about like buying turnkey rentals, like all the like the nuances of that. But then around 2016, when I started that podcast, was when I started to like change my um, my thinking a little bit. Because mm-hmm. with these ten, with these eleven single family homes, you know, you're having an eviction or two every year, mm-hmm. and you're having a big catastrophe probably every quarter. Mm-hmm. Which which is not bad, right? Because you're managing the manager, property managers, dealing with all that nonsense behind the scenes, but, you know, 10, 11 single family homes, that's only $3,000 passive a month, 300 bucks each. Yeah. Mm. Not bad, right? But it's not, uh, that's not enough for me to quit my job, right? Like, you know, I get paid 100 grand a, a year. I need a lot more than that. I need 30 mm. houses. So you just do the math. That's an eviction every almost every month. Yeah. And yeah. that's a catastrophe every few weeks. Yes. Um, just not scalable is the word.
2: Yeah. Well, and then you're also probably losing a lot of your cash flow on dealing with those catastrophes or if there's an eviction fixing up yeah, um, anything afterwards. I mean,
0: I'll give you that. I mean, the the cash flow and all the numbers made sense. Don't get me wrong, right? Like you're still making money. Um, I would say one every four would probably lose money for the year, but overall the whole portfolio would hit that magic number of, you know, two dollars $300 cash flow per property. Mm. So we're good there. Um, but yeah, from a scalability standpoint, and especially when eventually when the, the property appreciates, so you have more mortgage pay down or this good problem to have, which is, you know, more equity in the property, you've got to re-leverage that. Imagine doing that to 30 properties. It just becomes ridiculous. Yeah.
1: Gotcha. Did you work with uh, a single turnkey operator or were you working with multiple?
0: Yes. Yeah, so initially, I, I went with uh, one of those marketers. So, like, you can buy turnkey rentals three ways through a marketer who, you know, they, they have a podcast, they have like some kind of office, and they kind of hook you up with a turnkey provider. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, there's a fee for that. And um, ideally, you'd like this marketer to kind of help you out, right? Which is not always the case because I did work with a different company and they were pretty useless in my opinion. And they'll typically mark up a property anywhere from like a few grand to even 10 grand back in the day yeah. when the numbers were a lot better, which is fine. You know, as a high paid professional, you sort of want reliability and you're kind of shooting in the dark when you're first starting out. Yeah. Um, but eventually what I did is, you know, once you figure out what a good rental property is and, you know, kind of what's what you go through the, the process, and you can pretty much take a, a broker and go find properties on your own that are kind of fitting your criteria. You know, a little less rehab, maybe under $5,000 um, of rehab going in to get it ready, yeah. if any. And then, um, you know, you're, you're kind of getting a little bit better price just buying off MLS. Gotcha.
1: That makes sense. So you were in the Birmingham market, Atlanta, and Indianapolis primarily. Right,
0: right. So I had five in Atlanta, four in Birmingham, and I had one in Indianapolis and Pennsylvania. And obviously, if you're watching me like maneuver my troops around, you're you're thinking I'm going to put more in Indianapolis and and um, Pennsylvania, which I probably was. But then I saw this whole scalability issue happen. Yeah, and. At that time, I was like, "Well, let me follow the obvious breadcrumbs and go into multifamily apartments, and let me just kind of look into this because a lot of people said to do it." And so I joined like one of these mentorship groups, paid like thirty thousand dollars for a mentor to teach me how to do this, so I could be the guy who uh, picks up a hundred unit or two hundred unit, yeah, which was which is good. Like you know, you learn how to underwrite the deals, you take the P and Ls and rent rolls, you put it in the analyzer yourself. And then you put in offers, but big part of that, the hardest part is finding the deal. You know, you it's it's a full-time job, pretty much like networking with brokers, trying to be buddy-buddy with them. Yeah. And at the time living in Seattle, I mean, I'll just say this, if you don't live near the deal, there's no way you're gonna get these deals sent out to you. Yeah, you'll get sent deals, but 99% of deals that are being emailed out to you are just garbage. If you get a, a deal emailed via mass mail, it's garbage. Yeah. It's, it's one like that it's plan. one that
1: one that he's shopped around to all of his his preferred buyers and they're all went, No way, man.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <So>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah. But you want is the broker sends it to you, he attaches it at uh, the attachment and he gives you a quick half sentence like, Hey man, I think this is for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Yeah. Exactly. So I did this for about 18 months, months to analyze like a couple hundred properties and um one would think it was a waste of $30,000 to get that coaching, but, you know, it also prevented me from buying all these these deals that maybe I would have, you know, if I didn't yeah. know any better. And then, um, you know, so me and my partner, we were doing this for about 18 months and we had like a, a little um, strategy change. You know, we had about 40 units together. So we knew what we were kind of doing, but in the eyes of brokers, like, you know, they don't care. It's all yeah. single. It's all under 50 unit type of stuff. Yeah. So we were like, Hey, we need to build our track record. And, um, which meant let's go LP and a couple of deals. So at least we can look cool on paper. <laughs> so we did that. We uh, had 300 something units under a name, um, just as LPs. And then, uh, you know, I think both of us were kind of like, Hey, this is kind of nice. Right. And me, everybody um, needs to do this exercise. Like I, I took down how much I had on paper and I like kind of mapped it out and I said, Hey, my money just grows at like 15% a year as an LP. Here's where I will be financially right in five years, 10 years. And my net worth at the time, because I'd been investing since 2009 was, wasn't where I wanted to be. And I wasn't financially free by any stretch of the imagination, but I was on my, my track. And I was like, well, why do I need to be the operator putting down like hundreds of thousands of dollars on hard money? or I could just be an LP. So that's what I kind of focused on. Um just sort of being a good limited partner, or networking with I stopped talking to these brokers and I started to just find good operators joining mastermind groups and um, you know, because I, I knew how to analyze the deals. I knew I could like cut through the crap. And I just had to find other people and build my network of other passive investors to be able to vet out sponsors.
1: Gotcha. And were you at the time when you first started uh, investing as an LP? Were you an accredited investor, or did you we, did you come in more as on on different uh, like a five hundred six B or I can't remember what the reg what the reg is?
0: Yeah, I was a non accredited investor, so I would get in on five hundred six B deals. But you know, I think that's a misnomer. Like most people say, well, when I get accredited, I can start investing. But I think that's I heard a stat out there like 90 to 97 percent of deals are 506 B, which are non non-accredited accepting. Hmm. So when people say that, it's like, dude, your network just sucks. You just don't know anybody. Yeah. Right? you need to get out get out from your computer and mm-hmm. go outside. But unfortunately, like the one of the worst places to go to find these type of deals are at your local RIA or you know on the internet farms because those places are just a bunch of broke people. Let's be honest, right? Like you go to a real estate club because you're broke and you need to get unbroken real estate, which is what you hear is a good way of making money, which it is. Yeah. But high net worth people who are in exclusive deals are not at the local RIA. Yeah.
1: yeah. Where do you where well where where do you suggest people find uh, network for those kinds of deals and for those kinds of people?
0: Well, I mean I'm kind of like the accidental landlord. I'm kind of just slinging um, advice that I didn't really do. I mean, I had a podcast, so people came to me and I built my past investor network that way. And I joined mastermind groups, so I paid the play. So that was my path into it. But if you're cheap, well, God help you. (laughs) If you don't want to pay to get into some of these groups, I don't know what, what you can do, but. Um, the only other thing is like, think in your network, you must have some rich person in these deals. Like, that's a key thing. When I pull my investors, it's like, do you, how many people do you know in, in a private placement? You know, if the people have like one or two, the next, what I normally see is they're in probably about a dozen private placements or syndications, you know, it mm-hmm. just happens. But obviously most people aren't, you know, in those type of groups, right? They, have, they don't know anybody and therefore they don't aren't in any of these deals. Yeah. So that's the key. You have to grow your passive investor network.
2: Um, did you have any issues with the limited partnerships that you were? Was
1: it all sunshine on? and rainbows?
0: <laughs> you know, so like, you know, not all of them are going right. Right. And that's what the, it took me about 18 months of just building relationships with other passive investors to like get comfortable. Cause my first deal that I did back in 2013 was sort of like a syndication where I just invested with a shyster, it went on for, for a couple of years. Where you know I was getting my checks how I was supposed to be, but I think what they were doing is they were siphoning off the cash and just running it like a Ponzi scheme and paying us money out of that. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, lesson learned. I, I, later on, after I went into the deal, a year after I learned from my network that yeah, this guy's a shyster, and then sure enough, another year later. I got this letter saying, "Oh, we we're bank, we're going bankrupt. You need to take back this this asset, um, and it's all messed up." <laughs> so, um, lesson learned is, and that's why I say you need to build up your past investor network because these guys are out there, and you have to build up other people who have been success stories and can vouch for these people. And you know that takes a while to build up those real relationships. I think people are too nearsighted and, and short-term thinking saying they can just go around and, and meet people and ask them who are they using. They ain't gonna happen. You know, I'm not I don't know who you are. I wouldn't share my track record or who I would work with or who I wouldn't. You need to show me something too, you know? Yeah. So so yeah, that that kind of you know that kind of cemented that, you know, no like or trust. You gotta know and trust especially who you're working with. So one of the things that finally made me jump in was I probably met about like three or four people who are in like 20 or 40 syndicated deals, you know, so they get great experience. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, just, you know, I was like, I was able to get to know them pretty well. And, you know, took a, a few times meeting and, you know, at that point I was able to ask like, Hey, you know, so, uh, you know, how, you know, out of those deals, like what's the kind of the spread, you know, like, and you know. Then they were like, well, okay, so out of 20, 20 syndicated deals at 50 grand a piece, you know, maybe like one um, or two, they're like, yeah, we didn't really uh, hit our numbers on, um, we didn't lose our money, but like we, you know, it was maybe like a 20 or 30% return in three years, you know, kind of fell on its face. And they were like, yeah, maybe we didn't really, there was something weird there, but, you know, they got out.
1: Yeah.
0: The, the, the general partner kind of cut bait. But you also hear about these horror stories, right? Of like people embezzling money, um, running utilities through their their name, they get kickbacks, etc. On the opposite side, you know, you hear about deals that double their money in like two years or three years, uh, much yeah. because of market appreciation. I mean, just look at Dallas, right? Like you could have been an idiot and you could have doubled people's money in just pure market appreciation. You can see it because they they haven't implemented the business plan, and it's just getting. You know, it's yeah. Just the market carrying them, right? Yeah. Um. Not, not quite the case these days. You definitely need to underwrite your deals to like two percent rent increases per year. Yeah. And I'd expect it to be three, four, five percent. Yeah. And then they said, like, you know, everything else in the middle, it just kind of hits the numbers. You know, I mean, so I was like, yeah, you know. <laughs> it, it's kind of like playing Minesweeper, right? I mean, for the most part, you'll be all <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's like, all right, well, let's let me do this. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. and are you um I know you're, you're a fan of diversification are you uh, diversified across asset class operator and geography with your syndications
0: yeah yeah the you know the four ways you diversify with syndications right you hit it on the head different partners right because you know maybe I just don't trust people but I don't want to go in all one operator because you none know, of these are people right like maybe maybe working with house flippers is a little bit different but like you know these, a lot of people are just living paycheck to paycheck and you never know when times get tough, uh, what's going to happen. And I, I wouldn't fault somebody for choosing their family over their LPs. You know, I mean, it's, you know, when, when it's kind of that doomsday scenario, I get it, you know, you gotta pay your bills, you gotta feed your kids. So, um, how, how do I mitigate that? Well, I work with a variety of different operators, I probably work with like nine or 10 different guys at this point sponsorship groups. And then the, the other way is use different asset classes, right? Multifamily is what I know best, but I know from some of my mentors is that you don't go all into one asset class. It's silly, right? Any one asset class can get bombed out with any other particular incident like multifamily. And multifamily is just getting really, really overheated. Just I think it is the logical progression and people are thinking, well, you can get Fannie Mae financing so well and you can also get a property manager, and you can just plug and play, and that's why a lot of people are doing it who really shouldn't be doing it. You know, like self storage. You know, like that stuff comps drive your deal. If you're not kidding your rent per square foot comps, um, your deal blows up, and your deal can blow up pretty pretty quickly in self storage because they can just build that stuff so quickly, which is the complete opposite of what mobile home parks are. Right? You'll you'll never get a new park permitted, so your mm. comps are pretty. Um, steadfast Mm -hmm. and yeah geographic locations i'm probably in like 10 or 12 different states and um and then also the fourth way i diversify is like during these deals are like different business plans like some are more like shorter plays some are more longer term plays like 10-year holds um or blind pool funds um so those are the the ways i kind of look at you know like i have my investment philosophy with this type of reward and risk spectrum, but there's no deal that hits that perfectly. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to build a grid of risk reward or types and you're trying to speckle them. And then the the center of mass, if you want to, you know, I'm kind of geeking out engineering wise, you want to get that center of mass where you want it to be. Most of my stuff is in, you know, class B and C multifamily cash flowing today in the case of a recession, but 20% of my deal I'll do some flyers like an assisted living deal um bought some chocolate and um coffee farms well, I haven't bought the co- the chocolate farms yet but the, the, the coffee farms so far gotcha. you know, and you're like well that's really random but you know it's a smaller part of my portfolio uh
1: so I'm curious before we move on how how does a coffee farm syndication work so
0: this one is a little bit different. It's. Um, there's a deed to the land, but it also comes with a side agreement for the turnkey operation. So it's not technically a syndication, even though I think at one point they probably should turn it in a syndication because the deed is just a really hard thing to uh, to assign to all investors. It's just a huge headache. Mm-hmm. But so it's more of a it's, joint,
1: it's more of a joint venture at this point.
0: Right, right. Gotcha. And you do individual contracts with all Owners, where I think a syndication would just be a lot more cleaner. And yeah, In my opinion, I like the syndication better because it's kind of like a bigger document, a little meatier SECs involved. So I like that better.
1: Yeah, gotcha. You know, one of the things that um, I love about multifamily, self-storage, assisted living facilities, mobile home parks is that there's, there's demographic tailwinds behind them. I mean, it's just this massive wave of baby boomers are retiring. They don't have, many of them, you know, have spent most of their work life outside the pension era. You know, most of them were in charge of their own retirements. And most of them have, uh, most of their wealth built up in their primary residence, um, because they didn't save enough for retirement. And now they're getting close to, they're getting close to retirement. They're going, well, now I don't have, I don't have any money to retire on. I have to sell my home. Uh, or have to downsize, and now they they sell their home and they start renting. They move into a uh, move into a multifamily property, and they won't they don't want to get rid of their stuff, so they stick it in self storage. And then not long after, or if they're in really bad shape, they move into a mobile home park. And a mobile home park is basically you know your step above homelessness. You know nobody ever uh, moves out of a mobile home park. You don't. There's nowhere to go from there. So is that sort of, is that kind of an investment philosophy that you agree with? You follow along with that? I mean, I agree with that. I mean, I have a little
0: bit different, you know, to your point. I mean, the way I look at it is like the population is growing, right? Period. Yeah. You know, America's needs more workforce housing. That's what drives the demand. I don't think it quite flows in that order. I think it's just like there's, if you think of the population, there's this bell curve, you know, and people, there's a whole bunch of people that make under like 40, 30 grand a year. Yeah. And um, I think a huge misnomer with the mobile home parks. And if you haven't been in a mobile home park or one of you know these ones that I'm picking up, you know, I don't think you should talk. Right. Like, I mean, cause the first time I went, I took my wife and I was like, man, this is a lot nicer than all my C-class apartments. In fact, it's probably a nicer community than the Class B apartments. It just totally is mind-blowing if you've never grown up um, in a mobile home park. And it definitely is not trailer park trash. It is, um, on paper, you think it's D-class, right? I think that's where people don't get it. But it's it's very, yeah, you just got to go walk the property, like a lot of these things. Like, you know, like a Class C apartment, I tell my guys, hey, just come with me to this classy apartment and we can go to class B. And now you know, like, it's just a feel. It's very different and, and it's very intuitive. That's why real estate is so easy. It doesn't take any special skills.
2: So, can you tell us a little bit about how you're using uh, infinite banking?
0: Yeah. So, infinite banking is more for like higher net worth guys. Um, I'll, I'll start off saying that if your net worth is like under $500,000, you know, listen, but this is really not for you. So when I'm going into deals, I want to, you know, deals are sort of infrequent, right? Um, and I I don't want to have too much liquidity lying around, doing nothing, making like zero percent in the bank as it's waiting. So I wanna stick it into a infinite banking system which uses life insurance, which normally life insurance is kind of a scam, right? You know, your buddy from college or high school Mm -hmm. takes you out for lunch. He, He uh And he says, hey, I got this thing. I don't really quite understand it, but it's pretty awesome. You know, he'll Mm -hmm. sign sign you up for it. But 99.99% of these life insurances are not designed the right way to what you're looking for as a syndication private placement or even any investor in general who is trying to build an opportunity fund, not the opportunity zone fund, but I've kind of coined this term the opportunity fund that I have money lying around. That's making a return, a small return, tax-free, at like maybe four or five percent, in my life insurance. But as deals come up, I can go take money from that, take a loan from that, and put it into that deal.
1: Hmm.
0: So, you know, I always try and have um, a little cash on hand to go into a deal that pops up. But if two come up like right after another, I'm kind of screwed. So, what do I do in that circumstance? Well, I have some cash value built up in my life insurance policy, so I'll take a loan from that to go into the deal. And after that point, I'll kind of pay myself back um, interest and, you know, pay, replenish the cash value. So, here's how I explain it. It's kind of confusing. It's probably going to, you're gonna probably going to have to Google it and find a bunch <laughs> of YouTube videos. But when you're designing these policies, um, you're trying to design it for a liquidity, high liquidity. Um, so there's three levers. There's three ways to design this thing. There's liquidity lever. There is um, how much interest rate you're getting, which is, you know, how much the money is growing and then how much is the debt payout, which is like the whole purpose of insurance in the first place. But again, we're not talking about insurance here. We're just calling insurance. so We don't get taxed on it. Right. That's the loophole. That's the trick to this. The government loses because of this little loophole. So again, back to those three levers, I want a high amount of liquidity because I want to put the money in and I want the most ability to, to pull out the most money so I can go in and invest it to do that. I need to give up the other two levers, which are, I want really low death payout, which sounds crazy. And I want a low interest rate. And that's what makes most life insurance guys who don't get it. I freak out. It's like, well, why would you, why would you want to do that? You know, don't you want a higher interest rate? Aren't you an investor? But no, you want the high liquidity. You want the higher cash value. So. Here's a real-life example. You put $50,000 in. Um, initially, let's make no mistake, there's a lot of fees with this. So you're going to yeah. put your $50,000 in. You're likely to see maybe like $30,000 of cash value show up. So that meant a huge chunk, like you know, was that 20 30% went to fees your first year. You're, you normally, you sign up for like a program where you, you're putting money in for five or six years. So for the third year, you put in 50000 your fees structure kind of titrate down to like about ninety um ten percent, so you put ninety fifty thousand dollars in you've got about forty thousand dollars of cash value by the time year five comes around, you put fifty thousand dollars, it's pretty much all cash value so the, the fees go down so it's all front loaded gotcha. so you, you you've kind of kind of designed these these life insurance so these infinite banking schemes to like you know five years so fifty thousand dollars that's a quarter of a million dollars. So that's what I kind of did when I started it and um, I learned that it was a little bit too much for me because I ran out of money. <laughs> <laughs> so I was able to like downgrade how much I put in, but you know, now it's a nice cash value built up, right. Where I can go into deals, I can replenish it. And when I'm not, when deals are kind of low, like kind of now, um, it can be making a decent interest rate tax free. And gotcha. that's the, that's why people do it. you you're, you're you're creating this uh, balance that's growing tax-free, even though it's at 4%, but it's really like 6%, right? Because you're not paying taxes on it. And when you take the money out, when you take a loan, you're maybe paying 5% or so, but you you can call it a business expense. At least that's what I do. You can do whatever you want. But now that interest rate is sort of deductible. So if you're kind of following along, there's a delta between you technically you're making six percent and you're borrowing at like four. So there's like a one or two percent delta in there. And that just sort of a nice like um byproduct of this whole system. Gotcha. And this is kind of like what the wealthy do. They've got a big, nice portion in their life insurance to be able to pull out for any big opportunity that comes up. And I think that's that's the paradigm shift between wealthy people and regular people. Is that regular people are worried about emergency funds? I'm worried about my opportunity fund. I need money to go into good deals as they come
1: along. Gotcha. So. And you're, you know, you've got a, a let's say a syndication that's paying an eight percent preferred return during the hold period. You're maybe paying, you know, five percent on the loan from the insurance, but you're still making 3% Delta on the syndication. And then there's the equity bump at the end when the syndication exit. Correct.
0: Right. Right. It's kind of like using your HELOC to go into deals. Gotcha. Gotcha. Have you ever done that before? But no, no, I sold my properties. I just pointed gotcha. up and did it, but the HELOC <laughs> is a great way. You know, I working with a lot of newer investors, like it's a great way of dipping your toe in without doing like a, Irreversible transaction like selling your home or setting up, you know, paying in a, a point for origination costs and getting a new loan. Like for yeah. new people getting started, it's a great way to, you know, test it out. But eventually, you've got to get a pony up and sell the property or get a new loan and get the equity out, cash out refi. Because the problem with the HELOC is they only give you access to, you know, eighty percent or seventy percent of it. There's twenty or thirty percent that's never really utilized. Yeah. So it's kind of like the, you know, the 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 Gatorade on the bottom of the Gatorade, the big thing that they they throw on the coach's head—you never really get at that, right? Yeah, it's yeah. always there. Yeah. So, mm-hmm.
1: and are you? How are they? Are they utilizing it to uh sort of burr into properties? You know, buy rehab, uh, rent, refinance, repeat. Sort
0: I guess. I, I mean, I don't know. Way? I mean, I I don't really do you know burr stuff, right? Like most yeah. of, of my guys, myself included, we're high net worth. We we're too busy. to, yeah. to uh screw around with that stuff i, I don't like burst strategy at all i mean in the meantime you could have bought two or three assets from the get-go set it forget it work at your job you know i mean i think a lot of my guys their salaries are like 150 and above even 300 yeah. and for them it's just like well screw it i'm just gonna go work an extra shift this week and do an extra operation and yeah who needs this thing? <laughs> yeah yeah you sure. know it's it, there's a paradigm right like for people who make less than 50, 60 grand a year, maybe that stuff makes more sense. But if you're a high net worth, high paid professional, a lot of times it might just be like just working a little bit more at your job. I mean, for me, my track as an engineer, I mean, maybe I just should have just uh, sucked up to my boss a little bit harder and got you know, raised and got it up to like $150,000 a year. That, that probably was my highest and best use. I think that's the key. What's your highest and best use for your time for your and time. energy? Gotcha.
1: I've heard you talk about the drawback, the trade-off there, because a lot of professionals are, you know, they're working their way up the corporate ladder and they're, they're making $150,000 and they're striving to make, you know, $160,000. But what happens is they're, they're getting that $10,000 a year bump for 30% more of their time and energy.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say fifty percent more BS, but yeah, maybe <laughs> <laughs> I was maybe yeah. I was just working construction and it's just how it is. But yeah, it just yeah. doesn't make any sense. And it's like a perfect storm brewing, right? Like in your first ten years working, yeah, you can do that because you don't have kids. But when you have kids, there's just more more uh, demands on your time. And then you know, if you have, if now you're looking in this whole like debate of like, do we send them to the daycare and now. Maybe it's, it makes more sense for one spouse to like stay at home, and now we lose that, that income stream. And mm-hmm. then it's just like, man,
1: it life's hard. It's hard <laughs> for folks.
2: Preaching to the choir. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> As we, I don't know if you noticed, our our four year old or five year old popping in here every once in a while. We got yeah. Current... I mean, that's you know,
0: like one one interesting thing I've seen from like my investors is like you know they're either under the age of, you know, kids, like, you know, under 30 and they're super go hot. you know, they're super, um, into this and they're listening to all the podcasts. Yeah. Um, or they're like older than the age of like 42, the kids are like, you know, not older than five years old, like seven years old, they kind of go and do their own thing. And now the, now the, the parents have a little more time to focus on investing, but yeah, yeah. when that, you know, when you're like thirty. 30 years old to like 40 years old, or when your kids are like infant toddler age, that's like no man's land.
2: So when I see an
0: investor, like come up to me and like, like, Oh, you're kind of an anomaly there. You know, like hey, you sure you want to do this? Like yeah. there must be some, there's usually some huge pain point that has happened.
1: Yeah. yeah. It was a challenge for me when I first, you know, we got, uh, we got into real estate. Uh, we sort of accidental landlord, uh, into a short-term rental. Uh, it's, we we have a short-term rental at the front of our house and it allows us to kind of house hack, pays for our mortgage. It's what sort of gave us the first taste of real estate investing. And uh, But it was also right around the time that our son was about two years old.
2: No, he was six months old when six, we started there. Oh, okay, <laughs> the, sorry. Renting <laughs> it on Airbnb. Yeah. And I was cleaning it.
1: Yeah. And it, uh, you know, so it's like, I suddenly, my, my eyes get opened to real estate investing right at the time where I have the absolute least time in my life. I have no sleep. I can't, you know, you know, kid is, is awake at all hours. And so I, I understand what you're saying there about sort of that no man's land.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I
1: mean, there's like,
0: it's kind of like an interesting philosophical thing, but like, Pain is usually what gets people to start listening to these podcasts and, um, you know, maybe taking action that they wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, so that pain is usually like kind of exactly what you're describing, right? This situation, you look up to the sky and like, no, this this cannot continue. Or like, <laughs> my boss my boss is sort of like screwing me over. They're, you know, my coworkers suck. Um, or kind of in my situation where I was like, traveling all the time and i'm like never home and i was like oh this is cool now but i can't, I, I look or project myself 10 years in the future it's you know this better this is not going to happen but i think that that pain like it's cool because it like it motivates you to like listen to podcasts get started but it definitely wanes over three to nine months and I see it, right? Like people that come into my system, it's like they disappear after six months unless they get going. So, maybe I'm in kind of just trying to trick people into the right things, like the more conservative (laughs) route, just to get started, like how you guys did and how I did. Just get that taste, right? And then you get success. But you know, as much as pain pushes you, I think you need something bigger to pull you. Whether that is some greater, greater good or some, you know, because that that'll be the more sustainable motivation, I think. And for some people, it's like building legacy wealth for their family. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So you have a group coaching program to maybe help some of these people move through this?
0: Yeah. So what I do is like a passive investor accelerator group. So most of the folks in the group are accredited. So it's definitely a close-knit community. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I said, the biggest thing is, you know, growing your network of other passive investors, you know, um, my hope is, you know, people in this group, they'll, you know, they, they live all over the, the continental United States um, that maybe like when they travel, they go meet each other for coffee or have each other for dinner. You know, I, I, those are the, those are what you have to do when you're a passive investor. It's building real relationships with people doing the same thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it It helped me out. And I think a lot of people don't realize how important it is. The higher your net worth goes, the more important your n- network is. And I think, you know, I was talking with another entrepreneur yesterday, like going from zero to $500,000 net worth, you don't really need, you don't really need a network per se. You just need to work your butt off to get there. But from going from half a million to 5 million, you're going to need other people around you.
1: Hmm. That's a good point. So so when you, uh, when you started off, how did you, You've you've talked touched about this a little bit. Did you start off listening to podcasts before you started investing in turnkeys?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I I bought my first one, and then then I started to listen to all the the podcasts, and then read some books, got the basics, and then then I did the turnkeys.
1: Uh, and then how long did that take you before you bought your first turnkey deal?
0: Ooh, well, I mean, unfortunately, I had to save up money. <laughs> The 20% down payment. So it took, that was really the constraint. So it took me like a couple years to kind of, you know, build up those cash reserves two, three years after I bought that second rental in Seattle Mm -hmm. to finally pull the trigger on the first one out of state. Not sure. Big step. I mean, definitely glad I did it because I mean, that, that logic, that progression is critical um, to be able to not be an investor who is reliant on having a property where you can feel it, touch it every day. Yeah. to be able to be
1: distant from it. It's a real foreign, I have conversations with people all the time about real estate investing and that's a real foreign concept. But Why would you ever, how could you ever invest somewhere where you don't live? You don't see the, <laughs> you you know, and I have friends, and then I have friends on the other side of the spectrum, like, yeah, I own 10 houses. I've never seen, I've never set eyes, like physically on any of them ever.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's how I am. I'm like, you know, when are you going to stop being a landlord and start being an investor? you know, because I, I took a group to Birmingham, Atlanta for an investor tour and took them to one of my, my properties. And it was kind of like, yeah, I've never been here before, but here's one of my rentals. And, you know, a lot of my guys are like, what? Like, that's crazy, man. And like, look, I, I don't know how to do an eviction. I know how long it takes. I paid the bills, but I don't know how to do it. Every state's different. You know, I don't, I can't tell, you know, they're going through the property and like, I guess there's like different, there's like pvc plumbing and then there's like this new more plastic way that's a lot more modern and a lot better and doesn't freeze it wouldn't freeze it it gets bigger all stuff i don't know yeah and you know they're all geeking out on it i'm like hmm that's cool i don't care you know i'm an investor right yeah you know you you have professionals to to do this stuff just like when i was an engineer like i was more of a project manager i don't know how to build a bridge i don't know how to build a culvert right i don't have a clue how to do that yeah. But I get the project done, and that's my role as an investor. I'm the project manager to get it done
1: yeah our our very first podcast guest is a, a friend of mine by the name of Alex Felice and uh, he's bought a bunch of properties um in North Carolina and things like that and he has a great quote about it. he's like, what are you gonna do like if you're if you're people use the the idea of your your real estate being close to you as a crutch. It's like, what are you going to do if, the, if the, the tenant stops paying rent? Go over there and choke them out for the rent? No, you're going to have to probably, you're going to have to hire a lawyer. You're going to have to go through that process. And it doesn't matter, that process doesn't matter if they're two doors down or 2,000 miles away. It's the same process. No,
0: but. Yeah, I mean, hey, look, you know, what do I know, right? <laughs> Success
1: leaves clues. Yeah, exactly. And there's plenty of, you know, there, uh, what I sent my, my father was a landlord, um, back in the eighties. Uh, and I love my father. He's a wonderful man, uh, a smart man. Uh, but he was a terrible landlord. And part of it was that he was, you know, he worked a full-time job. He was a very successful career military officer, you know, and there was no system. So he didn't have a property manager. He tried to do everything himself. I remember he used me to go over and spread you know, anti-pigeon stuff on the roof, you know, of one of his condos that he owned. And then he had this little house, you know, on one side of town. And the guy who lived in it with his wife was probably a low level mobster, uh, always paid his rent in cash, always late. My dad always had to chase him for rent and, you know, hire a professional, <laughs> hire a professional to, to do that stuff for you. That's why they're there. And, and yeah, you're giving up eight to 10%, but you know, you're going to make more money with scale and, and buying back your time and allowing you to to do those things.
0: So. Yeah. But he was at a huge disadvantage, right? Like, I mean, without the internet, just no emails, yeah. just let me call this guy up, let me check up what he's doing. You know, it, it's just like, how did they ever get anything done back in the day?
1: I mean, <laughs> yeah, I they did, but I can't <laughs> imagine how. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, with the internet, I mean, there's really no excuse. I mean, yeah.
1: Well, and you can hire people. You know, like, well, you've got a contractor. What if your contractor's, uh, you know, uh, not, uh, you know, getting their job done? It's like, well, you can hire people on Fiverr to go and take pictures of a place once a week to see see what's going on with it. You know, you can, you know, if you've uh, if you've got a contractor, I hope you found them. You didn't just find them from Craigslist. I hope you found them from a property manager or a real estate agent. Lean on that, lean on that professional to basically keep their thumb on the contractor. So,
0: yeah. So. Yeah. And if you don't know like what you were just saying there, like it's 2019. Go to YouTube and figure it out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Everything is out there. So it's just more it's just more of a motivation thing and you know, executing than anything. Like there really is no excuse today.
2: So moving on, what what does a day in the life of a passive real estate investor, or I guess I don't know if you consider yourself that or if you um yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean today
0: I'm kind of more full time. I mean I quit my job 5 5 months ago, so mm-hmm. it's a little bit more Mozeltov. Uh, t-
2: <laughs> Yay.
0: <laughs> so but you know, not too long ago I was working a full time job, but I kind of created my life a little bit around the investing thing, so I was working private for my first 7 years and obviously we all know working private's a lot higher salary which is great but a lot less uh, quality of life and less free time for extracurriculars like real estate investing and um, so I went to more uh, public sector jobs later on and um, that you know so that's my my tip number 1 find easier jobs mm-hmm. you know now that I'm in my early 30s you know, that's kind of when they kind of look around and all the old people are retiring and it's just a game of attrition and they kind of look to me to take a manager role. But I just make, like, I'm, I'm stupid, you know, like, or like, <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of my peers, they kind of make excuses like, yeah, you know, my kid, he's, I got to spend more time with them, you know, just so people, they think that you're just, you know, they don't push you into those management jobs for 50% more BS, 10% more pay. Mm-hmm. No right? So it it, it is kind of funny, but then you get, the reason why I I left is just because like the people around you are just so, so difficult, right? And you start to work for like difficult people. I mean, a lot of my investors, they, they, they kind of do the same thing. They don't take promotions, but then you start to realize, especially in private sector, that if somebody's in middle management and they're over the age of like 55 and they haven't gotten their own personal finances straight you're really not working with a you know quality person they're not there because they want to be there they're, be- they're be- out of like necessity yeah and it just makes life difficult when you're when you're working with those type of people who are more uh, worried about their their family or just staying at their job i you know that's when you go to the public sector i think people are a little bit more nicer you know it's a lot less cutthroat so you don't have that as much but um to get back to your question you know so my jobs are pretty easy
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> i would
0: get uh, a lot of work I'm done on my phone in my cubicle you know get the work done at your job you know they pay you to do a job but you could typically do it in a fraction of the time that's allotted make your phone calls don't tell your coworkers what you're doing um unless you trust them but i would just keep it to yourself and, and um yeah, I mean that's that's the life of a uh, of a working professional. I mean, it's kind of like uh, it, it's it's kind of like living two lives for a lot of people, especially once your portfolio starts to get a little bigger.
2: Yeah. So what a uh, what does your time look like now that you don't have your job?
0: Yeah. So I wake up. Um,
1: it's we, it's pretty we, awesome you,
0: because you I
1: podcast I, people wake you up at early to. Uh, early to to get on jump on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs>
0: you know, like I I, I force myself to like you know I, re- I read that book like willpower is not right like it's basically like you need to create systems. So as much as I say like well t- today I get to live my life and what I choose to do something <laughs> I love right as opposed to working for the man. You know everything I do goes to my bottom line. You know it's me right yeah. i get to get all the spoils of war whatever efforts i do but i still get you know i can still fall into a trap of like you know at lunch i'll turn on the tv and it goes to the espn classic hardwoods I and mean, now i'm watching like the 2000 like 13 nba finals right or whatever you know i can i can i need to set up systems where i kind of get what i need to be done but now I live a life of uh, I can choose what I want as opposed to I'm forced to do something. Yeah. Um, so again, that's where the whole you, know, you need to find something that pulls you to the right way. And for me, it's just you know just creating more content online, helping people make right financial decisions, whether that's not buying your primary residence to live in and screwing yourself over with a big <laughs> mortgage, or yeah. buying that first rental. So a lot of my day is just. I'm sort of like a writer, I guess, you know, I imagine that's what a writer lifestyle is. Modern day writers it's just like, I can just blog and I do podcasts and then, you know, a small fraction of my time is the actual investing, you know, mm-hmm. because at, just like being a passive investor, working a day job, it shouldn't take more than a few hours a week. Um, maybe I do a little bit more networking on the phone than the average person, but you know, it it should be like, it shouldn't take that that long. and. Um, mm-hmm. I'll travel out to the mainland every couple months, at least every quarter, um, but only as a deal comes up, right? I mean, when, it, when I do a deal, I, I'm, I'm there. I got to be on boots on the ground and I have to like get, that, get a feel for the ambience of the location and maybe that might kill the deal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. But I think that now I don't have to worry about like burning up my vacation, um, you know, going out and doing due diligence properly or going to a conference. That's a nice thing.
1: Gotcha. Do you have kids?
0: No, no, I have a dog. You have a dog, you have a fur baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's one of my big advantages at this time. You know, that's the nice thing about starting early. You can kind of set the foundation before the storms come. So what I hear.
1: Yeah. So have you, do you have any systems or anything like that that sort of help you stay on task and automate things?
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm a big systems guy. I, um, I would recommend the book by David Allen, Getting Things Done. It's a great way of um, you know, creeping an inbox. So you're thinking of new ideas instead of just using your, your brain to hold on to what you need to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I work out of my inbox. Um, I get to zero inbox pretty frequently. Awesome. Where I get everything done Um, I need to do. Always unsubscribing to junk emails. Um, and then consciously using my time where I should be, so instead of being sucked in all these directions. And one of the problems I always struggle with is like doing like bigger projects, like editing a podcast or analyzing this one deal. For those kind of projects that take longer than ten minutes, I definitely need to time block it and put it into my calendar so it's there. And if I don't get it done, I have to drag it to the next day and I assign <laughs> it to a certain time slot to get done. Yeah. That's that's kind of the struggle that I live through today. But yeah, not the end of the world. That's first world problems for sure. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Are you outsourcing anything?
0: Uh, I'm starting to. Obviously, that's like a struggle in itself. Like definitely, I feel like any everything I can do would be better. And it's just sometimes it takes longer for me to explain it. Um, mm-hmm. I've struggled with using VAs in the past, uh, maybe because I paid them too little bit, like three, three bucks, and I just got lower quality people that just yeah. ghosted me after a while when they found a better paying job. But yeah. No, I mean I wanna kinda you know, I, I always wanna kinda keep my stuff smaller. I think when you go too big, that's when you kind of lose touch with folks. And yeah. um
1: gotcha. Uh do you outsource the editing of your podcast or do you do it yourself? I'm just curious. I kind of do it myself, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and, and that's
0: you know that's that that's kind of like probably uh, a huge disadvantage that i can do that stuff like right like i i edit all my videos and i yeah. on four, what was great is like i could do it initially so that's why i did it but then this is also becomes a disadvantage to me because i keep doing the damn thing and just yeah. taking my time
1: So sort of my issue as well, is I'm I'm come from a media background, so I can do it. I can do it. I can edit the video. I can edit the audio and it, it just, it became, it just became this massive, huge time suck. And it was a, a, (laughs) and it was a roadblock, Uh, especially for me. I've got a full-time job and a family and a five-year-old and a wife that want to want my time. And I finally was just like, I have to, And I, I put it off on, on pro who could focus on doing it. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I was like in high school, like, you know, you do the tape test for band, like I was editing that stuff for sure. You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. where you, that, that's where you learn the, the skills, but you need to let go of that stuff at some point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. That makes sense. All right. Last question.
2: Uh, so what advice would you have for someone that is looking to get into real estate? Just Pass- starting or, out, just starting out.
0: Uh, Other than the obvious, just do it. Um, (laughs) I would find somebody who who will be able to kind of look over your shoulder. Um, A lot of times it might be easier to just pay someone like a few grand. Like, hey, Mm -hmm. man, like, I just need you to run this transaction to me and look over my shoulder, make sure I don't do anything stupid, be essentially like insurance for me. How much do you want? Yeah. You know, Um, and you you can be cheap about it. You can try and find freebie people, but you're always, it's always, this blend of like, well, how much time is your, is worth, right? Like for higher paid professionals, it just makes more sense to just pay up a few grand and find somebody who will sign up as a sort of a consultant for you. Yeah, But yeah, I mean, that, that we be my, just get going. I mean, the first deal is never going to be the best, but it just gets you started. I mean, look at my first deal. Divian hit the 1% rent to value ratio in the yeah. primary market too, yeah. but you got the wheels going.
1: Yeah, I often talk about, you know, people, so many people just need to have their hand held a little bit on those on that first or second deal. And I think what you're talking about there is, is a great idea. It's like just, you know, have somebody and that's sort of what turnkey is in a way you're having somebody kind of hold your hand and do it. And I think it's a great way to to get started, especially for a business professional. But, you know, even if you're not doing turnkey, it's helpful to I think just have somebody say, hey, just I'll, I'll pay you some money let's, you know, just be over my shoulder and say, yeah, yeah, don't, don't buy that deal.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say like, just like, if I I like turnkey too, for a lot of guys getting started, right. Like you don't have to do all this burp stuff. That's complicated and risky. Just start off on the shallow side of the pool. And like, you know, but I think the, one of the, the the bad things I see are like, people will take too long. They want to listen to like so many podcasts and read all these books. Like, I would just say like, the first twenty of my podcasts are like all about turkey rentals. Just knock those out in the afternoon and re- read uh, "Millionaire Real Estate Investor" by Gary Keller, and you're good to go. Yeah. You don't really need more than that. That's the Eddie Twenty right there. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, that's a great point. Well, Lane Kalaoka, uh, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Um, you've got uh, your coaching program, and how can people um, how can people access that coaching program?
0: You can go to simple passive com slash journey kind of okay. stands for the uh, journey to simple passive which we all take together. Yeah. And um, yeah, if you guys come through, yeah, let me know. Um, you guys mm-hmm. came through you guys and just so I know kind of where people are coming from too. It's always, I always ask like, well, how'd you find me? You know, it, <laughs> it helps me understand like what their trajectory is and where they're sure. kind of going. And, and, you know, cause everybody's a little bit different. Maybe turnkey isn't for you. Yeah. You know? Sure. Sure. Yeah.
1: And is that the best way for people to reach you is, is that journey link?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Simple dot com is my URL and simple passive cashflow is the iTunes Google play. But yeah, I mean, my email is lane at simple passive cashflow. Okay. Um, I'm employee number one, so I get to pick that one.
1: <laughs> Congratulations. Well, thank you so much for being part of our show today. Thanks for sharing okay. with us. All right. And if you like this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you take just a few minutes and leave a review for us on iTunes. It's really simple to do. Just go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.